it is our first podcast for the year and we are so excited. Today we're engaging Mr. Michael O'Brien Onyeka where we talk about sustainability from a nature conservation perspective and how youth can get involved. So if you're looking to create a sustainable future for Africa, then this podcast is for you. Our questions today, what are the benefits and challenges of partnerships involving governments, private sector and civil societies today? Why should the youth be involved in the conversation on climate change? So listen in, engage us and learn something new. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Africa Green Collar Project. I am your host, Churchill Omondi Agutu, and today we're talking about sustainability in Africa from a nature conservation perspective. And to give us insight into this, we're joined by Mr. Michael Brian Onyeka, who is joining us from Nairobi, Kenya. He is the Senior Vice President for the Africa Field Division at Conservation International. He's worked at Greenpeace International as the organization's Executive Director for Africa. He's also had positions at the Africa Child Policy Forum in Ethiopia, the National Democratic Institute for International Affairs in Iraq, Oxfam, GB, and Amnesty International. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Churchill. Very, uh, very happy to be here. Okay, so to start off our conversation, how about you tell us a bit about yourself? What, what do you do at Conservation International and how did you get involved in nature conservation? <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, at the Conservation International, I'm just the chief servant for Africa, otherwise called the senior vice president for Africa, which means I am responsible for all uh, Conservation International's operations, programs, uh, and relationships uh, in Africa. And uh, it's a very exciting job. I'm truly enjoying every single moment of it. And how did I get involved in conservation is uh, being an African, growing up in Nigeria, where I was born, and recognizing and remembering that our culture is quite uh, about conservation. You know, when I was growing up, we were told uh, never go to a mango or orange tree and try to knock fruits down. But you wake up very early in the morning and you go to the base of the tree and whichever ripe fruits fall off, you pick. I think that's conservation, that's sustainability. Because when you knock the trees, you, you, you end up knocking down both ripe and unripe ones, which you don't eat the unripe ones. So reflecting on that and looking at the current challenges facing, facing Africa, uh, I developed strong interest in uh, sustainability uh, development or sustainable development. And uh, you can see that I've worked on it from a human rights perspective, uh, when I was at Amnesty International working on people's access to land so that they can control the means of production because we are predominantly farmers in Africa. I've done that through Oxfam by working to end poverty, particularly poverty that afflicts majority of artisanal or small-scale farmers uh, across Africa, including pastoralists. And then at Greenpeace, I worked on uh, environmental justice, more of activism, uh, which I truly enjoyed. And now at uh, Conservation International, I'm working to bring the government, the private sector and organized civil society together, what I call the Trinity. No offense to those who believe in the Christian faith. Uh, but these three key sectors need to be working together 
to solve the compelling challenges facing Africa. And uh, that's why I'm very excited to be here today. Okay, and this, you've mentioned something very interesting at the end about these partnerships. Um, has it, or have they always just been operating as silos for since like the beginning of the establishment? And is it only now because of the sustainable development goals that there's a need to sort of connect them, or has it always been there's always been a tendency towards trying to connect them? Um, I, I would say that uh, if you look at the landscape, the you know, operating landscape 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was very, very siloed. You know, the governments never wanted to work with organized civil society. They saw them as troublemakers, busybodies. Uh, the private sector felt that they had the, the, the financial capital and the innovation and knowledge, and they didn't need anybody. Uh, sometimes they would work with government because of the policy environment and needs. Uh, but they didn't want to work with uh, civil society. Civil society on its own felt that uh, it was us uh, against them. And uh, it was seen as a sellout three decades ago if you are found to be or seen to be working with either the government or private sector if you are in the organized civil society space. But thankfully, uh, in recent years, uh, going back five, at least five years, or going back to the beginning of the former MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, I think was around the time that people started seeing that uh, we all need to work together. So now it's become the norm. It's very much the norm because the scale of the challenge that face Africa, the massive reduction in our fresh water, for example, across the world, not just Africa, uh, requires that you need to have governments providing the enabling policy environment, private sector, ensuring that uh, production and value chains are done in a sustainable way, and the organized civil society providing constructive critique and solutions, not just criticisms. And uh, that's how things have been working. There's still a lot to be done uh, but at least we've begin we are beginning to move in that right direction. And CI, as its core modus operandi, its partnership is very critical. In fact, we spend uh, more than 30% of our annual budget uh, as grants supporting other organizations, including government entities. Okay. And um, with regard to that, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing? Because you've already talk, told us about how there was already, like before, a few years ago, there was sort of this resistance between, say, civil society and, um, say, governments and the private sector. Now that you're working on bringing them together, what are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing as an organization? Uh, the major challenge is around trust. Uh, because people historically, like I've mentioned earlier, were used to doing things by themselves and for themselves, and then complaining that nobody's coming to the table uh, when things were not inclusive at the center. So uh, the challenge is getting a shift in mindset uh, and uh, the way people do business, ways of working. Secondly, when you are bringing different, diverse uh, very diverse uh, institutions and organizations. Uh, there will always be naturally uh, big challenges. So, for example, uh, it is said, not completely true, but 
to some extent, it is said that uh, government departments and agencies move too slowly because of the bureaucracy, the chain of command, uh, simple approval process will need to go through many loopholes. Uh, private sector might be a bit more fast, uh, more risk-taking. Governments don't like to take risk. Civil society has its own way of doing business. So when you bring these three key sectors together and try to get them to work on a, on a single program or project, you can imagine naturally challenges would occur because uh, they all come from different perspectives and ways of working. So one thing I've learned uh, from experience is that if you are going to work with others, which is very critical, you need to factor in that you, it's going to take, it's a marathon, not a, a sprint, basically. So you need to factor in time uh, to say, I may need four to six months just to build relationships to get people to the point where they can trust each other, share information, and so on. And therefore, you can only actually start working together on a project proper, maybe after 12, 8 to 12 months. So, But if you are doing it by yourself, you could start by the second month running the program. Uh, but if you're doing it with others, it might take much longer. And that's the reality, and people need to factor that in. Um, with regard to that, I think one of the biggest conversations that I'm sure we've been hearing around really the whole world is this, the conversation on climate change. And I'm just very, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm quite um, maybe concerned, but also curious as to, because you, like you said, like establishing these partnerships are, is very important. But do you think since we are competing against time also, there's sort of a need to, hasten it or since like this establishing the partnership is uh, that important then we'd rather make sure that you establish the partnerships and then with time say now like, now deal with the issue of say like with, na with um, nature conservation in relation to climate change are we competing against time oh definitely uh, everyone knows and science has been saying for a long time now that we are living uh, at the 11th hour so to say uh, we don't really have much time. And what, one of the things we've been doing is to share this urgency with our partners, be it uh, government entities or private sector, or even other organized civil society entities. Because we need to, I, what I said earlier was that we need to acknowledge and recognize that different parties come to the table from different ways of working. But having said that, it's imperative that we do all, we all do recognize uh, the urgency that business as usual would, would simply not work. So uh, for entities or, uh, or corporations we've been working with, we've managed successfully to get them to move at the speed of business uh, because time is not on our side. And what I mean by time really related to climate change is that all the noise we are making about climate change, the Paris Agreement, we are only hoping to peak or to cap our emissions at 1.5 degrees change in temperature if we are successful, or possibly 2 degrees, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but scientists are saying that most likely this planet Earth that we have may not be able to survive more than 1 degree change in temperature. To put it in perspective, all the recent uh, calamities, uh, you know, droughts, uh, 
increasing drought, uh, more frequent drought, uh, hurricanes hitting a particular place three times in a row, unlike before. These are all due to just 0.8 degrees change in temperature. 0.8 degrees. That's how far the mm -hmm. earth has warmed since the beginning of the industrial age. Now, we don't know what the earth will look like or what these natural disasters will look like when we move to one degree change in temperature. And like I said, the Paris Agreement is hoping to cap us at 1.5 or 2. So you can imagine. Yeah. So even at 1.5 or 2, we, this planet might not be livable. And yet, we are not doing everything we need to be doing to cap at 1.5 or 2 degrees. So which means most likely we might end up at 3 or 3.5. So it's a worrying. It keeps me awake at night. And uh, that's the urgency we face. And that's why everybody needs to be working together, not in business as usual mode, but moving at the speed of business. And that's what Conservation International does. We move very fast. We take risks. We innovate, we use science, we build partnerships to get things done quickly. And um, with regard to that, that this this um, this agency that you speak of, one of the things that we're always trying to do in our podcast is to try and find ways that youth can get involved. What do you think are some of the best ways that youth can become involved to, say, um, increase the rate at which we are working towards um, meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement? Or achieving a sustainable future for Africa? I would say, thanks, that's a very important question you've raised. Uh, and I would say drawing analogy from politics and rights, uh, going back to my amnesty days. We do believe that rights are not given, they are taken. Right? You have to push for your rights. Uh, if you look at the beginning of constitutionality, like the Magna Carta in the United Kingdom, uh, the, the, the kings and queens of the day were forced to sign the Magna Carta at the end of a pitchfork because of popular people revolt. So if you don't demand, you won't get. So my message to the youths across Africa is that they need to cut their niche in the climate change, sustainable development sector and discussions. Uh, they shouldn't wait for that to be handed over to them. And a good example is what the Green Collar, Africa Green Collar Project or initiative is doing. You know, you weren't waiting for anyone to say, here is a permission to do it. You put heads together, you say, we need to create a niche, we need to bring youth together. And that's what needs to be happening at the sub-national, national, sub-regional and continental. So youths need to reach hands across borders, work with different sectors, including non-youth organizations, uh, to find the role of youth. Because don't forget that in, by 2040, 2050, 65 to 70% of the population of this continent, Africa, will be youth. Uh, so the future is literally theirs. And they need to be, right now, fashioning contributing to fashioning what that future will look like. You shouldn't leave it to people of my age or my father's age to decide uh, what your future uh, would be. So I strongly encourage youths across Africa. The key ingredient is to band together. Again, don't be in silo. Reach out across borders. Work with other youth uh, or youth-focused uh, 
uh, entities and fashion out what the niche for youths across Africa would be because that future of Africa will be centered uh, around youths. No, thank you for that. I think one of the reasons also we started with the Green Collar Project was um, the Responsible Business Forum, which was held in Johannesburg earlier this year. One of the things we realized was that there was we saw that there were a lot of conversations about you know sustainability and how businesses are working towards um, building sustainable futures and being resilient. But for a lot of people around us, this knowledge doesn't actually reach us. You know, and there's almost this huge, there's a gap where there's everyone having these big conversations and somehow, and youth are supposed to be involved, but there's Mm. no place where you can somehow connect the two. Mm. But also with regard to that, another thing that um, in terms of involving the youth, clearly there are also um, some skills that you need, say, like from your experience, there are some skills that you need to be able to build a sustainable future. Let's say like when you talked about um, working on building these partnerships, what are some of the vital skills that you think youth should actually work on now getting to be able to uh, to reach um to achieve these goals specifically from a nature conservation perspective i i i thanks uh Chacho. i i do get these questions a lot uh where people ask me uh, what object do you need to study to work in human rights or to work in uh, development uh, sustainable development or nature conservation And I say the primary ingredient, the most fundamentally important ingredient is interest. We need to develop interest first. You need to have the passion. And to develop that passion, you need to understand, one needs to understand the the, the critical center stage importance of nature in our lives. And a lot of people don't understand that. Nature is central to everything we do, the good air quality we breathe, uh, the fresh water that flows, uh, that we drink, uh, that we use for agriculture, uh, trees, especially or including nitrogen infusing trees, allow the soil to be rich enough so that we can plant in Africa almost all year round. Uh, And these are all to nature. It's not because of fertilizer, it's not because of any chemicals, right? And understanding that mm-hmm. nature is, you know, central to whatever we do, particularly in Africa. And in the context of looking at a doubled population in about three decades, which will require more feeding, more water, and so on, it becomes even more important to preserve our critical ecosystems. Not because they are cute and cuddly, but that they are fundamentally central to our survival in this continent. So that's all people need to get and to be able to work in this sector. It helps if you have an academic background in uh, nature conservation or biology or uh, primatology or anything related to that, which I don't have. My background is in sociology. Uh, which is the science of uh, humanity, uh, getting to know people. So it makes it easy for me to work with people. Uh, And then my master's is in international law and diplomacy, which helps me to build relationships, uh, develop partnerships, talk to different levels of authority, uh, be it at the global United Nations level or at the national government level. So there are different ingredients. There is no single silver bullet in terms of academics, uh, but it's an all, all, all everyone welcome kind of thing. 
Uh, but the most important thing is to develop interest, understand the central nature of, uh, of uh, the central uh, part that nature plays. And I will encourage uh, youth across Africa to begin to understand, uh, develop that interest. Ask yourself, the city where you live in, where does its fresh water come from? It doesn't come from the tap. It comes from somewhere in nature. And if you don't protect that water tower, what will happen? You will be facing a situation like Cape Town right now in our lifetime. Cape Town, the city of Cape Town has about four to six months of fresh water left. That's scary. In our lifetime, this is not science fiction. Four to six months of fresh water left one of the biggest cities in sub-Saharan Africa. And it can happen anywhere. It can happen in Nairobi, it can happen in Lagos or Yaoundé, because we take our natural resources for granted. We place low premium on them. We think they will always be around. No, they would never be, they won't always be around if we don't maintain and manage them sustainably. But do you think that um, the big the reason why people make this assumption is like you said, water comes from your tap. So no one actually takes time to think about you know that the water actually comes from say like a water reservoir or it's actually a natural resource. And based on that, what do you think is one of the way that we can make people realize the value? Should it then be charged at high prices? Should it should there be awareness campaigns? What do you think are some of the ways to create that understanding of the value? Because when I think about like a lot of times, I had to consciously now I'm mean, now that I'm working in sustainability, I have to tell myself that when you switch off the light, you know, mm. it, it's very important that you switch off that light because that's energy being consumed. And if one yeah. million people are leaving their lights on, imagine how much CO2 you're producing if you're depending on coal, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And exactly the same with water. You know, when you are brushing your teeth and you leave the, you leave the tap to keep on running for five minutes, <laughs> Uh, you are wasting water, uh, fresh water that is scarce. You know, people, I think part of the challenge or the reason is that people look around, the earth is filled with water. It's almost 90%, 94% water. But only 6% of that water is potable water, drinkable water. So water is one of the most scarce natural resources we have on earth. And that's why... Uh, security assessments, global security assessments going back to 2009 has been warning that the major conflicts of the 21st century would be around natural resources, particularly water. We've seen that in Darfur, the first ever uh, nature-related conflict. People say it's a tribal conflict. No, it was around natural resources, particularly water, exacerbated by ethnic differences. We are seeing Egypt threatening uh, Ethiopia with war if Ethiopia keeps on damming the Nile, because the Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt. Uh, we've seen Tanzania threatening Malawi about the misuse, what they perceive as Malawi's misuse of their natural lake. Uh, lake Victoria basin countries. We are going to see more and more uh, resource-related conflicts around the world, particularly in Africa, as the earth warms and the cultivating belts shift. So where you used to produce staple crops like rice, sohum, and millet or corn would shift. And so food insecurity will increase at the same time that the population is doubling. 
I mean, that's a complete Hobbesian nightmare, you know, where life is brutus, brutish, nasty, and short. And so people will forget about oil. People will go to war. Countries will be going to war over fresh water. Um, so understanding that and then reflecting that in that context, we still water our gardens with fresh water. We wash our cars with fresh water. We fill our swimming pools with fresh water. It is crazy. And so I, I agree with you that we need to do massive, it's a combi it will need to be a combination of the massive uh, sensitization and education uh, across the board. I believe that nature conservation and sustainability should become a core curriculum from nursery, primary, high school to universities, compulsory, especially in Africa. And do you and do you also think that energy, and it's also connected to energy in any way, do you think that energy can help in, say, because um, if you look at how energy, water, and food are connected, because um, you mentioned now about how food security is related to water, where does energy come into this um, equation? Do you, say, do you have any perspective oh, sure. on that? Energy can play either a positive or negative role. So if you take the wrong energy pathway, don't get me wrong, I fully recognize and understand the urgent imperative to roll out more energy across Africa. At the moment, energy penetration in Africa is less than 40%, which means more than 60% of the population in this continent don't have access to energy. But when you take the wrong energy pathway, like based around fossil fuel, like we've seen in South Africa, right? South Africa produces 49% yeah. of all energy produced in Africa. It's a massive energy hub. But 80% of South Africa's mm -hmm. energy comes from coal. Coal is one of the worst fossil fuel climate damaging uh, uh, material. And it has led to acid mine drainage, which pollutes uh, the few remaining water sources in South Africa which has led South Africa to be declared as a water-scarce country. But more importantly, and this is what people don't realize, when you look at all the coal power plants in South Africa, together they use a total of 10,000 liters of fresh water per second to operate in a water-scarce country. So if you take the wrong energy pathway, you run into more problems. So that's why we've been pushing for, yes, to more energy, but a good combination of renewable energy, wind, solar, geothermal, hydro. And, and, then, and then, sorry, and then once you have good energy, that creates opportunities for innovative livelihood systems that does not diminish the environment or natural resources because then you can have solar instead of cutting trees for firewood you can use different cooking energy uh, efficient systems if you have good penetration of uh, renewable energy uh, across the continent okay so from what, from what i'm getting basically you're also telling these and it's like there's an opportunity for us to create a sustainable future, but we, it's very important that we understand not only, first of all, how all these things are connected, but how it relates to, say, um, social mm. issues, and then how it sort of transgresses into cre how you can create partnerships, say, with different organizations, because you need to bring everyone to the table, because once everyone agrees, then it's possible to move on to creating a sustainable future, really from any perspective. 
Exactly. Exactly. Okay. No, but thank you so much, Mr. Onyeka. Onyeka. Um, we, this was a great conversation and thank you so much for engaging us. We look forward to engaging you in the future with more cons- conversations. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Green Collar Africa. On Twitter, it's Green Sea Africa. And the SoundCloud account is the Africa Green Collar Project. Thank you so much, Brian. Have a good day. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Bye. Okay.